connection? Where is the continuity between the two books? And then, okay, so we have this Old Testament. Are we still supposed to follow it? These are valid questions. Because a lot of people today teach only from the New Testament and kind of just leave the Old Testament on the shelf. Well, you can't do that. Because all of Scripture is inspired. We need the whole piece. Am I ringing? I hear ringing. Sorry. So we're going to read from Matthew 5. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that out of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what we want to jump out at us are these four things. Jesus is come to uphold and fulfill the law. So that means he's not abolishing it. He's upholding it. The law stands until everything is accomplished. Well, what does that mean? Until what is accomplished? Obviously, the one who breaks it is least in the kingdom of heaven. The one who um, practices and teaches it is the greatest. And John talked a little bit about that last week. And, of course, our righteousness, righteousness needs to be better than the scribes. Is it better if I put it down? Is it holding it or... Okay. Thank you. So these are the things that jump out. And so we're going to talk about why this law is being upheld by Jesus. Okay? So the first thing in your outline is you see these codes and these commands and these covenants. And that's what everybody think the Old Tes thinks the Old Testament is all about. And for the most part, they're right. Because, see, when the fall of man happened... There was a separation between man and God. And so God, in his love, enacted a plan in order to reconcile men back to him. The law is part of his plan, believe it or not. So why do we have all of these laws? Well, first of all, they were a direct revelation from God to his people. They were issuing from his very nature. They were laws to help them learn how to worship him properly, how to have a relationship with him, how to have a relationship with one another. And in those laws, they're kind of divided in, in three ways. You have moral duties, you have ceremonial duties, you have civil and social duties. So these were statutes and judgments and ordinances, and if you've read Leviticus at all, it's hard to get through. It really is. And then we have the commands. And John talked about how at Mount Sinai, Moses received the commands. They're also known as the Decalogue or Ten Words. And five, the first five are duties to God, and the second five are duties to humanity. You shall have no other gods before me. That's on our duty to God. Thou shalt not bear false testimony against your neighbor. 
That's duties to human. Okay? Overall, there were about 248 commands and 365 prohibitions. That's hard to live up to, right? So when we think of the law, we think of all of these things. How can we possibly live up to all of this? How could they at that time? But see, laws were meant to govern the people, to help themselves, like a parent to a child. If I tell my child I have rules for the household, like don't touch that hot stove, it's what? It's for their safety. If I tell that child not to talk to strangers, again, it's for their safety, right? You, you don't want anything to happen to that child because you love that child more than life itself. And so you install rules and guidelines in order to keep them safe, in order for them to recognize, too, that they should be dependent on you. And that was what was, the law was designed to do. So we know that this law given to Moses is also called the Mosaic Law. It's formed of the Pentateuch, and the Pentateuch, Pente, is five, five books of the, the Bible. So you have Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. So just to kind of give you an overall scope, I'll list a couple of things. In Leviticus 17 through 26, those chapters, it's the Holiness Code. It's the moral and ritual specifications for tabernacle and public worship. 19 through 18 is love your neighbor as yourself. 20 through 26 is Israel to be holy and separated. And then they were not to have any pagan worship. How many remember the Shema? We've talked about the Shema before. Anybody? To the Jewish people, the Shema, I don't know how to say it, is like up there. It's like one of the top things. Because the Jewish people were supposed to be monotheistic. And the, the Shema basically said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. They were to be wholly committed followers of Christ, followers of God at this point. They were to love God with their heart, their soul, and their might. So then you get to these covenants. So you have these laws and you have these commands, but essentially at the heart of the continuity of the Old Testament and New Testament are the covenants. Now the covenants were an agreement. The word covenant actually means to cut, like you cut a deal or you cut an agreement, as they say in business. And God made covenants with his people. He made a, co a covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 9 not to destroy the earth after the flood. He made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 to bless Abraham. And when they had these covenants, these covenants were designed as in a treaty nature, which was the nature of the treaties that the people had at that time. So Abraham knew the agreement, the type of covenant, the kind of treaty that God was offering him. In essence, what God was offering him was a blessing and a cursing, because that's how it was set up. You would have a vassal or a person or a people make an agreement with somebody that would take care of them, a king or governor of the area. And essentially, the governor would say, if you do these things, I will bless you. I will bless you with descendants. I will bless you with land. I will bless you with peace. 
is a blessing and a cursing. Because if you did fail to obey the statutes or the terms of the covenant, then you basically invoked curses upon yourself or disaster in the case of Israel. Now, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 is the foundational covenant for all other covenants. And we see that, and this is the piece that is woven like a thread through the Old Testament into the New Testament. God also made an, uh, a covenant with David to have a king on the throne. This is also part of the covenant that goes through the Old Testament and connects it to the New Testament. Now, every time they did a covenant, they had to ratify it. Now, back in that time, how they ratified it was to slay an animal and shed the blood of that animal. And what I'd like you to do is turn with me to Hebrews 9. And you might want to put a little marker there because we'll be coming back to Hebrews. Hebrews is a wonderful book of the Bible that kind of connects the dots for you about what happened with these covenants and what these covenants mean, especially to the Jewish people but what it means to all of us as well. And so it's a wonderful book. But it gives you a picture in this verse of what shedding the blood and what enacting the covenant look like. Because they did it on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, once a year, the priest would go into the temple and offer up a sacrifice for his sins and then offer up a sacrifice of sins for all the other people. And they did this once a year. So in chapter 9, verse 19, when Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to the people, he took the blood of the calves together with water, scarlet, wool, branches of hyssop, sprinkled the scroll and all the people, and he said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in the ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It's a beautiful picture here in Hebrews of what Moses did for the people out in the desert and what they did in the tabernacle when the priests went in to go to the Holy of Holies to present the people to God. Because, see, there was no direct access after sin happened. A priest had to go before the people and offer the sins and had to make a sacrifice and blood had to be shed in order for there to be a covering for their sins. Now I talked about the law being an expression of love, much like a parent to a child. And if you think about it, the the people from Exodus had been in slavery for quite some time. They had hard taskmasters, and the Lord, by God's hand, brings them out and saves them through Moses, and they're in the desert. And Moses is on the mountainside receiving all of this word from the Lord. And what are the people doing? The people left to themselves are celebrating, and I can understand why. You know, they're now free, and it's time to cut loose, you know. But what happens? They make an idol. There's just abhorrent things going on. While Moses is in in God's face, the people are down there committing sins already. 
it's kind of like a parent leaving the child. I left you for five minutes. What happened? Right? So you can see that the Lord, he wants a people for his own. But he wants these people for his own to willingly want him as well. All right? And so this plan, this covenant, is his plan to reconcile the world back to himself. And so when Moses brings back the commands and the law, and they finally settle down, and there's a sense of peace and order back, they, they do a sacrifice, and they go to rat, um, ratify this covenant, if you will. The Israelite people promise, promise on oath, to follow the every word that the Lord says. Now, we know Israel's story, though. As much as God loved them, and this law was an expression of his love, because they were supposed to be a specific people, a treasured people unto himself, they disobey. Now, what the people failed to realize is this very law was supposed to reveal their Redeemer. It was making his ways known to him because he was a pure God. He was a holy God. He was a just God. He can't have sin before him. And he was trying to let this law lead them in the way that they should go. Teaching them right from wrong. Teaching them what is sin and what is not sin. Teaching them how to depend on him. That was the function of the law. And when we look at covenant keepers... I talked about Abraham and the covenant that God made with him. This is in Genesis 15, and you'll have to go back and read it. But God basically puts the burden of working out the covenant himself. And see, this is where this trips most of us up, because we look at the Old Testament, and we look at these prohibitions and these commands and these codes, and we get hung up on it and go, I can't do that, and we walk away. But see, if you look, God puts the burden on himself. What he does is he has Abraham take an animal and slice it directly in half. You grow. And he splits the animal and puts one one half on one side and one half on the other side. Now, each of the organs are strategically placed and they mirror where they're placed on the other side. So there's just a little pathway. Now, the interesting part of the story, like I said, is that he does not have Abraham walk through the slain half of the animal. Remember, blood has to be shed to ratify the covenant. He's making a covenant with Abraham to bless him as the father of many nations. For land, for peace. And just so you know, folks, we are the sons and daughters that are far off from Abraham. Okay? So he makes this covenant with Abraham, but does he have Abraham walk through it? No. It is God himself that walks through it. And what that meant, folks, is that God was putting the curse, if that covenant did not happen, if that covenant did not get fulfilled, God was putting the curse on himself. Be it done to me as it's done to this animal, if I do not fulfill my covenant, my word, Do you get that, folks? So we get hung up on not being able to follow through and enact every single little thing when God was going, that wasn't what he was worried about. 
He wanted worshipers from the heart, true worshipers of spirit and truth, to willingly want to obey him out of their love for him. But again, we know Israel's story, right? They're not covenant keepers. Israel fails through sin and through her own weakness, through apostasy. Apostasy is basically where you are serving one God and you turn around and leave that God to go serve something else. That's what apostasy was. The Lord sent prophets to warn them. Does no good. They go into exile. And he even takes away their physical way of worshiping the Lord by destroying their temple and destroying their city then. Post-exile, after 70 years of being exiled in Babylon, they come back. And their first goal is to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, if you will, first, and regulate everything, right? So what do we do? The pendulum swung here, and now the pendulum's going to swing back here because we're not going to break any of those laws now. So you get where the people's heart and attitude are by looking at the last chapter of the Old Testament in Malachi to give you a picture of how well they were doing with keeping the covenant. These are the offenses that Malachi names. In chapter 1, verse 7 through 14, hypocrisy in worship services, social injustices in chapter 2, pagan religious practices, divorce, withholding tithe. Gee, doesn't it make one wonder that if that is the state of affairs for them in keeping the covenant, and then all of a sudden, there's no word for 400 years during the intertestament period, and all of a sudden, Jesus shows up? Doesn't it make you think about today? Maybe a little foreshadowing of where we are in the state of affairs of things sometimes in our own heart, let alone in our own activities? I'm praying that God shows up on the scene, folks. But anyway... As you can see, we go from Malachi, and then we jump into the New Testament. So we're right where we left off, essentially. The people are in no better state because now they are in occupied territory by the Romans. It's Caesar's rule and reign, and then you have scribes and Pharisees, teachers of the law for the Jewish people, and they are now twisting that law. Remember, they're trying to regulate it. They're trying to control it. But it also brings them political power with the Romans. All right? So the New Testament flows right out of the Old Testament, basically, without breaking any continuity. And what you see the Pharisees and scribes doing, they meant, they meant for good. Because, see, they were trying to preserve the Jewish people. They were trying to keep them holy, keep them pure, make them distinctive, keep their heritage intact. Okay, that's their line of thinking, but that's not what they're doing. Instead, what rises to the occasion is religious legalism, works, dead works at that. And they twist and, and, and turn the law to suit themselves, to make it easier, actually, for them to obey. So what that perversion, what that twisting of the law reveals, it reveals their heart. You see, it reveals their lack of righteousness, and righteousness is right living. It's a quick way of saying what righteousness is. It's right living. It revealed their heart, and it revealed their disconnection from their heart to their mind. 
about what the law was supposed to be for. Again, remember, it's to draw them to their creator. Draw them to their dependence on him. But instead, there's a disconnect, and they fail to see what the function of the law is. So they make it for themselves. Now, the law, like I said, leads us to Jesus. It's supposed to set up a straight path for us to go, to know the difference between right and wrong and what to choose. And Paul points out the law, the old covenant, was a covenant that could not be fulfilled on man's side because of human weakness and sin. You see, what the law couldn't do was effect a permanent change in people. It could not get down to the root cause of sin. It could not get rid of guilt. It could not get rid of shame. It did nothing about the sin itself. It just pointed out that there was sin. Do you hear me? So God, in his expression of love, says, I know you can't live this out. And this is failing miserably. But see, God knew ahead of time, because he's always got the plan, right? He's the creator. He's the creator of the plan. So in your outline, I've put a promise of the new covenant here in Jeremiah 31. And if you're interested, Hebrews 8, if you're still in Hebrews, Hebrews 8 actually quotes this passage. It says, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, this covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and I will be their people. He's saying the time is coming when I will make a new covenant. And it won't be like the one I made with the forefathers, with Abraham. When Jesus comes on the scene, the people are expecting a Messiah. They're expecting a king. And they had this because throughout the Old Testament and through the laws and codes and commands and through the Pentateuch were over 300 messianic promises. And the Gospels pick up on the scene when Jesus gathers them about him talking about the kingdom of God. He came and he's going around preaching that the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is here. All right? And so in their mind, remember, they're in occupied territory. They're thinking that he's going to be the kind of king that overthrows the Romans and that raises Israel up nationally, politically, religiously, and that all the laws will be done away with. So when you go back to that passage in Matthew, when he's talking at the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, I'm not here to abolish the law, they're like, what? Because that's what they wanted him to do. Do you see? He was here to uphold the law, not abolish it, because he needed that law to stay intact because he was the one that was coming to fulfill it. Only they didn't know that. They're assuming he's going to overthrow and take a king, be king, and set up his own rules and reign. And because they're his people, they're in, like Flint. Right? But that's not the case. Jesus is saying, I'm not here to abolish the law. I'm here to fulfill it. 
So here's this gap, right? How is he going to fulfill it? And Mark and Matthew and his disciples pick up on Jesus' verbiage here on being the fulfillment. Mark 1.14, he has this whole formula that you'll find as you're reading through Mark. That when Jesus does or says something, it will be fulfilled in this time. Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken of the prophets. Luke says, the law and the prophets were preached until John the Baptist came and Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom. Now, if you will, turn to Hebrews 10, chapter 5, because this is what Jesus says about himself. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, Sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Wow. That says it right there in a nutshell, folks. He was the answer to the covenant. He's come to fulfill God's will, and God's will was that this plan that was enacted to lead people to him, to reconcile the world back to him, was going to be fulfilled in the new covenant, because what the old covenant couldn't do, the new one's going to do. And it's going to happen because Jesus is going to do it. Paul says, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So you have these radical demands then. You're going, okay, if Jesus is not here to abolish the law, and these Pharisees are twisting the law, what exactly are we dealing with here, right? So in your outline, uh, it's on the page that says, you have heard, but I say unto you. Now, as John talked about, when John was talking about how uh, Jesus was upholding the authority of the word, he's exactly correct in saying that. Because when he comes to say that I'm, I'm not here to abolish the law, I'm here to fulfill it, what he's challenging is not the authority of the word, nor the law itself, but their interpretation of the law that these Pharisees and scribes, scribes have put upon the people. Because, you see, if you remember the temptation of Christ, he said, it is written. Every time he quoted scripture, it is written over and over again. Here, as you're reading through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, after this passage, after verse 20, the, the Lord starts revealing the deeper meaning of the law. He's trying to draw out from the people what the law was meant to do and correct what they had heard. And see, so you hear Jesus start out with each of these different issues that he dealt with, you have heard. Or it was said. Why? Because they said it. That's not how it was written. That's not how God intended. That's what they said. Okay? So what happened was, like I said, that the Pharisees and scribes tried to twist the law. 
make it easier for them to obey. And in doing so, they alienated a lot of people and hurt a lot of people. So I tried to give you a visual here, and I, it just didn't work for the screen because I have too much information, but it's just a visual for you. If you see the first one, it says, only the act. You see, what the scribes and Pharisees did was say that the law only restricts the act of murder. We don't necessarily have to deal with the people that did it. Just the act of murder. Jesus, you see the E, extends the meaning to mean angry thoughts, angry words. Well, do we always verbalize angry thoughts or angry words? No. They're in our heart, right? So you see the disconnect. The Pharisees are talking about the outward external action, and Jesus is talking about the inward person of the heart, the motives and the intent. Adultery. At that time, they were only dealing with men. The restriction of adultery covered men, but not women. So if two were caught in the act, who got in trouble? The woman did, but not the man. Why is that? Well, why do you think? Who was twisting the law? Who was probably disobeying the law? So you see false swearing, and just for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through everyone, but that's just a visual for you, that Jesus, where it says extended, was extending the meaning to mean the intent of the heart, the inward person, and where it's restricted, it is where the um, Pharisees twisted it to suit themselves, basically. But you see, the radical demands of God, like we said, are to obey the spirit of the text the inward motive. And Jesus was pointing out to them that obedience came from the heart. True worship is the wholehearted, committed person to the Lord. And the Levitical systems of effectiveness of the sacrifices were of a temporary nature. They were put in place as a good thing because, as Jay would say, they recalibrated the person to remember their sins and bring them before God and get cleansed of them. They were a good system for that people for that time. All right? But it still depended on the motive of the worshiper. If their heart is disconnected from what they're doing, they can never fully be cleansed. They're only sanctifying the outward part of themselves when they go to make this sacrifice. They still have guilt and shame that goes with them. And they had to do it every year. So it was a reminder that the sacrifice was never enough. Every time. It's, they, they carried it with them year after year. The greatness in the kingdom belongs to those who are faithful in doing and teaching the whole moral law, is Jesus' point. Not picking and choosing what suits us. Not requiring converts to do it our way or our method. Circumcision of the heart matters. And fasting and sacrifice, those were good things, but the better thing was mercy, justice, and faithfulness. See, what Jesus was pointing out was what these people of the law were doing was putting a burden on the people to try and fulfill these laws, which they couldn't do. And Jesus said, 
They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders. That's what Jesus said about those teachers. And see, the law was supposed to be a framework. It was supposed to tell people, again, what sin was, help them choose right from the wrong, help them go back to God and be dependent on him because they needed rescue. See, and this is the part that I have to explain. The law, when broken, has a penalty. That penalty is death. And so when a law is broken, it cries out to the worshiper to somehow be made right, to somehow be made whole and be clean. And the old covenant offered no such way to do that other than going through the priest once a year or whatever ritual ceremony was provided and have an animal shed for them. That was the outward. They still carried it inward. And the new covenant that Jesus in Acts deals with the inward person of the heart. If you'll turn with me to Hebrews 9. I told you we're going to spend a lot of time there. Verse 13 says, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer sprinkled on those who ceremonially unclean sanctified them so they were outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Again, their sacrifices were of a temporary nature. What Christ did when Christ died was totally do away with the sacrifice. He did it once and for all. His sacrifice was enough because he was God's own son. He was God and he was man and he was sinless. He who knew no sin took on the sin of the world. He took your sin, my sin, their sin, and he cleansed us. Remember, the shedding of blood is the cleansing. It forgives And so Jesus' death is the climax at this point because it inaugurates the kingdom of God. It is the last days when Jesus dies. And so this is the time that we are still a part of. Now, you know, when you have a death of an animal, it's a death. It's a giving up of a life for somebody. And that was involuntary. Jesus willingly, voluntarily said, I will pay the penalty. I will pay the ransom. Like we read in Hebrews, he says, I am here to do God's will, basically. When we believe in him and who he is and what he has done, then we realize that he has taken that burden off of us. We no longer have to worry about death because we're freed from death. We're freed from that penalty of the law of sin and death. It says, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. I'd like with, um, for you to read Romans here, and I've got it in your outline just so you don't have to go paging through your Bible. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation, amen, for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life sets me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of the sinful man, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. 
Justification is God's declaration that the demands of the law have been fulfilled by the righteousness of his son. Only one who was sinless could do it, and that was Jesus. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and not imputing the trespasses to them. You know that song that we sang, As Far As The East Is From The West? It's because when he died, he took that sin and he remembers it no more. It is no longer counted against you. Do you hear that? There's no more condemnation. What does the enemy try to do? He tries to blackmail you, accuse you, bring you down, and tell you that you're not worth anything. Because you did this, and because you think that, and because of this or that, you are not worthy. And what does that do? That keeps us from what? Worshiping God. Because we feel like we're dirty, we're ugly, and we're unworthy, and we can't come before Him. Because He's a pure and holy God. But Jesus, Jesus, in His death, because there's forgiveness now. Why? Because he shed his blood and took on our sin. We are cleansed. We're clean. We're made whole in God's eyes because Jesus stands before us as our advocator, as our intercessor. Reconciliation covers all sin, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. So not only are we sanctified on the outside now, we are sanctified on the inside. You know, we would think, and I'm talking about the part where Christ gives us everything we need, because, you know, Christ did this. Again, it was God enacting the covenant, but Christ is the one who did it. He did the deed. He died. We think that doing the will of God from our heart is like some unattainable idea. And it's not. It's not. Read with me, Ezekiel. Look what the Lord says to us. Because he's here to help us. He gives us what we need. It says, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What is that saying? That is saying that he now lives inside of me. You know, we talked about that temple. Well, think of the temple as your heart. And think of that priest as Jesus coming into your heart. And as he's doing that, as you're giving your heart to him, he is transforming you, he is changing you, and those things that you once had an inclination to do are no longer the nature of Christ because the nature of Christ is now inside of you. He lives in you. That same spirit of Jesus lives inside of you to transform you into his image and his nature and his character. And his image, his nature, and his character is what? Good, holy, just, righteous. And little by little, the more we become like him, the less that we have this inclination, the easier it is to follow him and obey him from our heart. Because he is our heart. He's the heart of the matter. He's the heart of the law. He's the heart of the matter. He's the whole reason. And so that makes obedience easy. Because even though Paul said we are, as Christians, are not under the law, that doesn't give us freedom not to obey it. Right? I still can't murder somebody. I still can't 
go steal. But because I am in Christ, I don't even have the inclination to do those things. Now, I'm talking about big-scale things, but that includes the very little itty-bitty things that we need to do, like forgive our husband or forgive somebody that we have an offense with or all the little itty-bitty things that we get tripped up on. And I liken those things to those little itty-bitty things of the law that the Pharisees and scribes tried to make a big deal of when Jesus said, no, it's justice, it's mercy, it's faithfulness. That's what's important to me. Not those sacrifices. Not how many days you fasted. Not how many hours you put in at the food pantry. Not whatever. All of those things are good. All of those are things are important, but you should do them out of the obedience and of your heart because you love the Lord, because you're committed to Him. So we now become part of the new covenant when we believe in Him. God receives us as one of His own because we are now reconciled as sons and daughters to Him. We become, again, once again, the people of God. Acceptance with God is not through obedience to the law or dead works, but through faith in Christ. The law bears witness to this good news. Now, that other part of the outline, that's just for you to keep, but a part of the question that we had in talking about the continuity with Old Testament and New Testament is what sort of things are we still supposed to follow? What sort of things do we not have to worry about? And so I just kind of put a general um, table there, if you will, that you can look at later, because for the sake of time, I don't want to go through all of those. All right? But I think what I want to do right now is kind of close, because we have communion here, and we're talking about covenant. And in Matthew 20,